Hey there. Welcome to another episode of Wish I Knew, a podcast where I speak with people about their career success, advice given or received, and listen to their interesting stories about how they got to where they are today. I'm your host, Gary Nowak, and today I am truly honored to have someone special, someone I've always looked up to in my consulting career, Bob Cecil. Bob trained as a nuclear engineer, and he made it to a Big Four partner. Bob was involved in three startup consulting firms, widely recognized as a thought leader and industry spokesperson for shared services and outsource advisory. That's the service line that I've focused on in my career. One of the best consultants I've ever had the pleasure to work with. Bob was great at remembering, mentoring, coaching me along the way. Very impactful to my career. Some highlights from our discussion, business development and consulting, how you win business, how you sell projects. His advice was letting go of your fears. What intrigued him about consulting, loves solving complex problems and being curious, the most important thing in being a successful consultant, having role models is extremely important to your success, how you can embrace them. He gives advice on how to reach out to people that you're looking up to, very impactful. Solid advice he received was heroes don't scale. I always say if you want to go quick, go alone. If you want to go far, go with a team. Also, the power of I don't know as part of the sales process. His key to success, basically having a strong team around him, keeping your own compass around ethical dilemmas. We talk a little bit about a few that Bob had in his career. How Bob wants to be remembered. Okay, I know you don't want to hear me talk anymore about Bob and how great he is. So I'll let you enjoy my conversation with Bob Cecil. Hey, Bob, thanks for joining. I really, really appreciate your time. Ah, great to be here with you. Thanks. I usually start off with, what was your first job? Well, that's an interesting one. Probably my first true regular job was I would flip the pizzas. I was uh, worked in the back room cooking pizzas at a place called Pizza Shop. How old were you? High school. Any lessons learned there? <laughs> How to sweat. <laughs> so later on in the, in the podcast, I usually say fun stuff till the end, but I'll ask you this now. What's your favorite type of pizza? Barbecue uh, chicken pizza. California Pizza Kitchen is good for you. Yeah, well, for that one. So from flipping pizzas to career and consulting, and, and now what are you up to? Tell us about that. Sure, uh, happy to. I'm at a next phase, I would say, of my career. I retired after, you know, 30 plus years. I uh, am predominantly in management consulting. Uh, retired out as a partner at KPMG recently. Right now, I'm doing, uh, well, predominantly, I would say two things, actually, that relate more on the professional side. One is giving back more as a board director on a not-for-profit organization, which has its own challenges that you have to give advice and guidance and step in on uh, in terms of uh, sustaining and building the business there. And then I have launched with a number of former colleagues, a coaching, uh, guidance, and development advisory firm to help uh, management consulting advisory type of firm to help shared services and global business services leaders improve their operating model. Excellent. So looking back, you went to Purdue and I believe you got an engineering degree, correct? Correct. Then you went to one of the best schools in all of America. That would be the University of Michigan. God, I love you. What drove you from Purdue? And I think there was a little bit of a hiatus. There was about a two to three year gap between the two. Yeah, I was in Michigan for a while. Yeah. And then what drove you to go to Michigan to, to go with the MBA program? Well, I knew I wanted to 
one thing about me, and actually it was in when I was you and I were talking about some of the aspects of this podcast. I think it does differentiate in terms of some advices. I was a pretty, uh, I would say, achievement oriented in terms of my career. In fact, my now wife who met me back then would say I was excessively achievement oriented back then. <laughs> I've, I've mellowed some in my older age. You know, I knew that I wanted to further my career. And I didn't want to just be an engineer. Nothing wrong with just being an engineer. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But for me, I wanted to actually get some more on the business side. So that prompted me to go from engineer, engineer work to then go into uh, uh, management consulting. But eventually, and the MBA became the way, the path to be able to get there. And why did you choose management consulting? And I believe you have a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit as well. Yeah, I mean, back then it was, I really like, and this is a little of the engineering side, I really like helping solve complex problems, but not necessarily all on the technical side, right? And many times on the management and the business side of the house. So the variety consulting <laughs> in and of itself is directly geared to that, plus the variety that you get from being able to do that. And you get to work with some really smart people and colleagues, both on the client side and on your team side to be able to make that happen. So all of those were what attracted me to consulting, I think. The entrepreneurial spirit. I've, I've often said when I mentor young people that consulting is a way to be a safe entrepreneur where once you become a certain level, yeah, say partner, nobody directs you and tells you what to write about, what thought leadership to produce, what clients to go after. I mean, they might and they encourage you. But would you agree, you know, with a safe entrepreneur or what, what would you advise entrepreneurs out there that are looking to hone their craft? Would you think consulting is viable for them or different avenue? Well, I mean, there's different dimensions. For me, I was an entrepreneur both in the sense of what you would call more of what they would call an entrepreneur, right? In, internally within the larger consulting firms. But I was also an entrepreneur in starting up in essence, three smaller consulting firms and building them up over time. So either, I mean, if you're in a large consulting firm, it's, you would normally do something like lead a practice or something like that. And so you're very much an entrepreneur there. In that sense, if you're in where I was, where I grew, started up with, originally was for Cecil Inc. with a, another gentleman that I that I had as a partner there, then it became Gun Partners, then it became Equaterra that we ended up uh, selling to KPMG. Those clearly were entrepreneurial ventures that I pursued. And consulting gives you those types of opportunities, whether or not you decide to do it for a large firm or whether or not you do it for a small firm, or you do it like I did, which I started large and then went small for a period of time and then went back to large. What do you like most about consulting? Most, I would say, is the colleagues that I work with and the intellectual curiosity and joint problem solving that I do with my colleagues. That's probably the most enjoyable part of it. I mean, the end result is having an impact, you know, with a client. That's great. But the actual work that I enjoy doing is being able to jointly problem solve and think through things with my colleagues. So I've seen you in business development meetings. What kind of advice or perspective would you have on people going through their career when, you know, consulting is difficult at a lot of times. You're, you're a manager, you're actually doing 
you're on the ground, you're project managing, and then they promote you, and all of a sudden you have to have all these BD skills, business development skills to to sell. So how how do you help somebody go from doing into selling? I would say one is that you have to first let go of some of your peers around it. I was <laughs> I was definitely not a natural business developer. I still wouldn't call myself a natural business developer. I think I developed those skills over time. But if somebody had looked at me at age 25 or 28 or whatever and said, oh, you know, is this the person who's going to be the salesperson? They would never. The engineer from Purdue, are you kidding? Right. You know, it was, you know, who did nuclear engineering early on in his, in his career. You know, that's not the, the profile that you would think of at, for a business developer. I did have some good mentors and we can touch on that that went along that helped me. So I emulated some of them that were very good. That was that having role models is important and having those role models be willing to coach you is very important. So find somebody who will coach you in the day to day interactions. That's really important to be able to understand. And then as I went through, I gathered various things. I had some uh, coaching mentors, you know, coaching advisors that helped me. They helped me a lot on things like how do you build relationships? So relationships are the most important thing in business development. You're never going to sell somebody something until you reach the threshold that they trust you first, right? So you have to really spend some time making sure that you get past that trust factor. Before you, you know, if you just sort of dive in and start having some technical discussion or something with them, you're going to fail. So build the rapport first. Once you build the rapport, then you can have the more substantive type of discussions. That helps me. So how did you build trust? Listening first to what they want and what they believe and not always accepting it. An important one is. People talk about listening, but active listening is you hear something, you may or may not agree with them. And in fact, the times when you build the most trust is when you challenge them constructively into their thinking. You go, hmm, that's interesting. I wouldn't have thought of it that way. I'm curious, you know, as to what you meant by that or why you think that something like that. Because what it does is it forces them to step back and reflect. And that all of a sudden builds a trust factor that you have with them, that this is not going to be a transactional type of a discussion, that it's actually going to be, you know, beneficial for them. So that's how I tend to do it. So I appreciate that. And having worked with you for so many years, I saw that in action. And I saw the relationship you created with people I think our last project together in 2012, I saw that right up front. It was, a, it was a long engagement. And what you said is the appreciation level of somebody not to just take their word for it because we do come in as experts and we do have a point of view. But the two things you mentioned, well, a bunch you mentioned, building relationship is through trust. You mentioned active listening, listening to what they said to, to say. And I loved your point with, well, I never would have thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. Very, in my mind, powerful. Having seen it in action, and just for the audience, Bob is a guy who would, he has a great memory. It wouldn't be, no, Gary, uh, it was that presentation we did at XYZ Company. No, Gary, it was the third meeting we had with XYZ Company. It was page 27. That's the slide that I want you to pull into this presentation. So 
being a nuclear engineer by background gave you that side of the brain that you could remember the most finite details of everything. So, so really, really appreciate that. We were talking about business development. You weren't perceived. So what you touched on that I wanted to maybe unpack a little bit is the mentoring. I'm a big advocate of mentoring. I write in my Wish I Knew series on LinkedIn, The Power of Mentoring. I wrote one on Mentor Me. So what, what, what would you recommend the best approach for young people that would sincerely be intimidated by someone like you to reach out to you for, for mentoring? What's your advice to them? So one thing, let go of being intimidated. Because, you know, I saw this more in the KPMG world where I would get people that were younger in their career and they would, they would look at the partner and go, Wow, I don't know if I can ask a partner questions, right? You know, type thing. And, and you would be surprised how many good mentors there are out there that they're just going to be open. You know, they're going to be open book with you. So you don't need to be afraid of them. They're actually, they, enjoy, a, a good mentor enjoys it, you know, being able to do this. So I would say one is let go of that fear of, you know, oh, this, you know, partner versus, you know, whatever staff or whatever, you know, sort of type. That sometimes happens in a consulting type environment. It could happen in a business type environment also, you know, manager versus vice president or whatever, right? The second one is, at least for me, the best mentors that I had were people who took enough personal interest in me. It's exactly what you just said, that would notice the details of what I did. It wasn't a cursory mentorship. It was they were consciously looking at how I was acting in a certain time in a certain place. And they would give me specific feedback, you know, to say, oh, don't do that. <laughs> you, you mentioned I went to University of Michigan. I remember this one of my more embarrassing moments, right? When I was a young consultant, right? <laughs> and, and we used to take notes, you know, before I had iPads and things like that to take notes on. So we carried notebooks around. And I carried my University of Michigan notebook around, right? Bad move, because <laughs> you know, my mentor told me, it makes you look young, <laughs> like you're fresh out of school. And I go, well, I am fresh out of school, <laughs> but don't do that. <laughs> you know? So that was a learning moment. But the important thing was, as a mentor, they were willing to be able to you know, share those very specific things with me. But it's ironic, because after every meeting, you would end it by saying, go blue. For some reason. So <laughs> you lost the notebook, but then go blue. Okay. <laughs> so how do you like mentees to prepare for you? I, I like the fear because my time in China, there was just this disparity between if you're a partner, they don't even look your way. We were in offices. I remember sitting on a the floor. There were 12 offices at one side. Every door was shut except for mine. As soon as I walked in the office, I, I bought this really heavy baseball so I could keep my door open. But every other partner had their had their door shut. Okay, a young person overcomes their fear. Like, hey, Bob, I, I need some coaching, mentoring. What's been productive for them to bring to that meeting with you to get advice? Is there anything that stands out in your mind? Well, I still mentor people. I would say they're usually have the best ones are when they have more specific types of questions. They've done their homework, you know. To be able to ask, I'm, I'm debating whether, you know, I'm to do X or Y. You know, what do you think? That, it, it, it's less helpful if they're just saying, I want you to be a general mentor. You know, I mean, you don't have, as a, as a mentor, you don't have any grounding to be able to help them at that point. It's helpful if they come with some specifics around 
what they might be either struggling with or a decision they're going to make or something of that those nature of that nature. So kind of tagging on to that, what's some of the best advice you've been given in your career? And maybe, you know, if you want to uh, provide some worst advice in the career, but if, if you were to think about best advice, what would that be? Variety of things. One thing it was around the listening is to continue to probe. One specific thing that uh, I went through early on in some of my coaching, I think this came from my, some of my coaching, was ask, ask why three times. So keep asking and asking and digging deeper and deeper and deeper type thing, and you get a better answer. So that's that was an important one. Another one that was good advice for me is I had a uh, a colleague. I don't know if I would call him a mentor. That probably it's not the true statement, but who gave me advice and said, you know, heroes don't scale. That meant that. They would observe me and they would say, Oh, you're trying to be the person in the room. And guess what? They may love you, but guess what? That's not going to impact. You know, you need to bring others along with you. So make sure that you bring others along with you. Don't be a hero that doesn't scale. That was a good piece of advice. If I had to think of things on the other side, advice that isn't as helpful, I've had it. I've seen consultants in particular fall into this trap which is you have to be the expert in the room. You have to be the answer person, things like that. And it's actually more powerful. You ask about the business development, how you built trust is to be able to say, I don't know, but I'll find out, you know, sort of that type of a view, as opposed to trying to make it up because you're the quote unquote expert. If you really don't know, you're going to build more trust by saying, I don't know, but I'll go find out. I know people who know, et cetera, et cetera, than you are trying to fake it. So that's bad advice being, you know, trying to always be the expert. So if you were to compare a small consulting company that you would start versus a KPMG. Oh, the by far the biggest single difference is in a small consultancy, you hunt and you're the hunter farmer together, you know, sort of type thing. And almost nothing comes to you except for through your own relationships that you built as a small consultancy. Or that, you know, a small set of relationships that you and your partners have built, right? In a large consultancy, the business development side of it, there's as much that comes internal as external, right? One of the things that we did, I didn't coin this phrase, uh, in Equiterra that was very effective, what was called blowfish marketing. Because we were in a small consulting firm, we had to project ourselves. And if I think about Gun Partners, and I think about Equitaria in particular, it's those two sort of major entrepreneurial stints I did. Both of us, we, uh, from a marketing and a market reputation, we punched way above our size in, in both cases. I mean, people would look at it and go, Gun Partners, you're 40 people. I had, you know, I thought you were 400, <laughs> you know, type thing, right? Same thing with Equitera, right? Is they, they would look and say, yeah, you're punching way above your weight, you know, type thing from a market reputation perspective. So I, anyhow, I think that's, that's maybe helpful. When I reflect back on Equiterra, how easy or difficult was, was that decision for you to start? Uh, that one was actually easier only because I had gone through two entrepreneurial stints beforehand. The hardest ones were my first two entrepreneurial stints because my first one was I was leaving a large, one of the large consulting firms and I was think I was somewhere around age 31 or something like that. 
with, I had no economic certainty of any sort at, at that age, leaving a large consultancy and, and basically just starting off on my own. So that one was the first one where I said, yeah, I, I knew I could weather the storm. Even when we had ups and downs, and we, you do, by the way, you know, you're going to have ups and downs when you do something like that. The second one was when I went to, I was asked to go to Europe and start a consulting arm of a small consultancy in Europe. That one was, you know, a step above, right? Yeah. You know, I had actually, I'd had my first child. He was one years old at the time. And so I had him to, you know, as well as my wife to move to a whole new continent, you know, continent with no infrastructure whatsoever and go figure that out, right? And make that happen. Those two, once I had, because I had both of those under my belt, Equiterra actually was much easier to be able to make the jump because I had the confidence that I knew I could weather some of the, the difficult times of a startup. And when you say ups and downs, financially, obviously, because I remember starting with Equiterra and the way it was fiscally set up with the pay we got and the way in which we got paid um, is very conservative. For a lot of us, it was it was a risk, but it was a, for me, it was, certainly was a risk worth taking because the upside has been exponential. Yeah, but there were times when there were ups and downs in the market, too. When you went to Europe, how easy or difficult was that with the family obligations, with the remit, what you were meant to do? Oh, sure. There was a lot of consideration. It was scary. Uh, to be honest. And I mean, you talked about business development. I was the, <laughs> you know, I was it, right? When I first went over there, you know, so I was going to have to be able to sell work to people that I had never met and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to be able to make that happen. I mean, you just figure it out is the honest answer. <laughs> you know, you go through it. You you, you're somewhat, I'm an engineer, so you're somewhat logical, you know, and you figure out here are the stepping stones that are going to be required. But you do need the support. You do need the support of others to be able to make it happen. Find good people. Find really good people to go along with you was really important. What's the recipe for the success of your career? What would you attribute it to? Your ability to X has been what's, what's made you the success. I would say predominantly it is finding good colleagues to work with and then good in the sense of both capable but also ones that you can build trust and relationship and collegiality with and things like that also probably the most important as you go through it and, and you know I, I had those in all of my stints that I went through you know it's a little different when you go into a big consulting firm there it's you have to because they already have everybody there, right? So that is more about selecting the right colleagues that you can work with to be successful in that big consulting firm than it is about when you're in the entrepreneurial. It's about, hey, these are the people that are going to be in the boat rowing with you. You better be certain that you can, you know, work effectively with them. If you find yourself in the big four or the big three, the remit for a lot of people is to figure out who who you can go trust, who you can count on, because there's a cast of characters, as we know, yeah. in the partner level. And some some are great, some are less than less than trustworthy. Yeah. Have you ever had any yeah. ethical moments within an organization? Or oh, I've had lots of ethical moments, unfortunately. To be fair, and maybe this goes to uh, the fact that in a smaller consultancy, you're able to pick your own partners. I had less of that in the smaller consultancies than I had in the big ones where you don't have that option. I've had a lot of uh, moments where, I mean, I had one moment where, geez, 
I had a, I found out later I was the manager on an engagement and I had to take on uh, literally the mistress of the client to be on the consulting team to consult back to this person <laughs> with no skills, by the way. You know, I mean, it would have been okay if they had at least had skills that I could rely on, but no skills whatsoever. And frankly, the ethical dilemma, it was not just on the client side who asked us to do that. It was on the partner side, frankly, who agreed to put that person. So that was an ethical dilemma that I had to deal with. Another ethical dilemma that I dealt with was, I recall one, I won't name the firm, I won't name the partner, but a partner who went out and said his business development was to go do certain vices with the client. <laughs> you know, and it's like, really, that's how we're going to sell? <laughs> you know? It's not based on our, our capabilities. It's not based on what we know. It's not based on our advice. It's <laughs> none of that. Oh, I wish I had known that. <laughs> you know? So I probably would have skipped that business development call. Those are some ethical moments I ran into. When they read it, they read advice and they got rid of the first two letters and said, I'm just going to focus on the vice. The point is, from a, from a, you're going to run into those situations. You have to just keep your own compass about you on those types of things. They do happen. Um, for, but they don't happen often, fortunately, but occasionally they will. And you're going to get, and you're going to get minor versions of that. You're going to get minor versions like I want sales credit for something when I don't, you know, deserve sales credit, you know, that type of stuff, right? That's the frustrating part of consulting for those that haven't got to that level is fighting over revenue. On a more positive side, who's been some of the biggest influences in your career? First one, early on in consulting. Actually, let me reflect back. My first real mentor was someone when I was in engineering. And that's probably where I gained a lot of my enthusiasm and understanding of you do have to be motivated and in the right way and achievement oriented in the right way. I mean, I met a lot of very talented people that were not necessarily motivated in whatever their role was and they're less successful than, than someone else who may not even have been as talented, that would, but who was highly motivated. My first real one in consulting was a gentleman named Ori Shackney, who, gosh, he was talk about a business developer. <laughs> he had, I mean, he uh, had this, what I would call this infectious laugh about him. <laughs> you know, you'd hear it miles away, but talk about a way in which to break ice. He was great at breaking ice. So going back to the relationship, I'm not, I wouldn't do it that way, but I did understand from what it meant to be able to break ice and to be able to actively listen and question was really good from him. So he was one of my early ones that I would give as um, a good mentor. How did you break ice with clients? Uh, I normally would try and do something that was relatable to them, I guess, is the first thing I would do. I'm not one that breaks ice with slap you on the back type of, you know, type thing. But I might talk about a school. I mean, if I knew, I would normally do some research on them, actually, beforehand. And then have something in my hip pocket that if I, to be able to have a, you know, a discussion with them. Did they go to whatever, X, Y, and Z school? You know, how dare you have gone to Ohio State? Why did you do that? You know, <laughs> You're well more thought out than I was because I always led with sports. If they lived in Minneapolis, like, oh, so you're a Twins fan? Viking fan? Well, no, I moved to Philly, so I like the Eagles. But 
no matter where I went in the world, maybe except for China, because in Australia, they have the Australian Football League. So you immediately living in Melbourne have to pick a team. So I picked a team and on Monday after a weekend of, of footy, that's what people would probably yeah. talk about. So I always, it's not a bad, not a bad one to rely on. And I can hold a conversation with, with most people about any yeah. sports. So yeah, I kind of, I kind of like that. So kind of reflecting back on your consulting career, how is it that you want to be remembered? Oh, that's an easy one because remember, I just re- re- retired from KPMG. So they had us go through this whole, you know, reflection on your consulting career, you know, type thing. So that's a layup for me. You want to be mostly remembered for how you developed others. People will remember you by far more about how you develop them, how you help them than any client you had, any care that you did something really neat for Nestle or Walmart or whatever my clients were and that I saved X, Y, and Z money or improved some customer service or whatever. They will remember that, but they won't really remember that as much what they really remember. And I still get notes. I mean, what I get notes are, I miss you because I miss your coaching. That's what I, that's why I get, that's why I'm still mentoring people. You know, it's because of that. They want to know your mentor, you know, that you care about them and help develop. That's your legacy. And our, our project prior to my going to China, which you were instrumental in, and you've been a great influence in my career, was you sent me a Detroit Tiger baseball jersey with my name on the back and number 10. I thought, oh, yeah, there you that? go. <laughs> so you show recognition for people as well. Do you have, a favorite client or a favorite project? You don't have to name names, but was there something that just stood out as a pinnacle for you that you were super proud of or that you built up or something that stands out in your mind? Well, let me build on that. I think there are, if, if you're in consulting long enough, there are pivotal clients, not one typically. I mean, you may start with one. You always have to have your first. Okay. So I would say there are a handful of them that I always keep I refer back to on a regular basis. And part of it, it, and what are the characteristics of those? One is they tend to be longer term relationships. It's not a single engagement. And it's not even, and, and they're often broken in years. You know, it's like, oh, you did something for them here and then you waited a few months or, you know, or even a couple of years and then they call you back when you needed something else. So it's a bit of a longer term type of relationship that you have as opposed to an individual project is, I would say, is it is an important one. And normally, I would say it was broad enough and impactful enough. You know, I had one client that was like four-year re- relationship or something like that. We basically restructured the whole company. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was impactful, right? And uh, that was big enough. Uh, you know, I mean, they were normally, a lot of mine was like establishing very large-scale global business services and or outsourcing type of relationships over multiple periods of time and through multiple stages of their improvement journey, things like that. I would have done those were the ones that I would be most proud of that I look back on and and that people would recognize. One thing that always stood out to me working with you is your memory on certain scenarios. The client that we were on together was a pharma mm-hmm. client and you would go point by point across the major pharmaceutical companies in the yeah. industry and explain by the year, by the function of when they went over to a, a global business service or, or some type of right. relationship. Between that, and when I reflect back what you said earlier, that challenging the client is that may be a bit too strong, 
but when you question their perspective yeah. or hmm, I've never thought of it that way. So you challenged in a, in a very soft way. One of our other colleagues who I should be talking to in a week or so did it in such a nice manner, but it was more abrupt. Mm-hmm. Both of you hit the mark on building a relationship with clients. So you've mentioned how important a relationship is with the client. You've mentioned it in business development. You've mentioned it in long-term relationships. You've mentioned it as proud moments you've had when you reflect mm-hmm. back. There's something people are listening to this will take away and I'll, I'll capture it as relationship building, trust, being curious, saying you don't know something when you don't know something, taking risks. Like when you went to Europe, you're like, you know what? At some point, you got to get it done. You got to roll up your sleeves. What advice do you give for young people that, that want to get some global experience? Well, the easy thing is go on a global project, obviously. <laughs> you know, I think that will help you, actually, because there is a cultural sensitivity of global experience that is very helpful. I remember one time I, my funny story was being able to see the different cultures. I, was, I lived in Switzerland, and it happened to be a Swiss client. But if you know anything about Switzerland, it's actually made up of, well, there's actually four languages, but predominantly <laughs> French, German, and Italian. And the cultures are very different between the three. And I did a trip from the French part and their part of it to the German part to the Italian part. And how different they were between the three of the same client was, was amazing. You know, so being able to see that cultural difference when you work on a global engagement is really helpful for you. Uh, so I would say in terms of advice is I would try and get on a global engagement first. I mean, yeah, if you can get an expat assignment or a transfer or something, that's, that's a different career move. I, it may or may not be a good move for you individually, but certainly get the exposure of a global client. I get a lot of young people based on my background that want international mm-hmm. experience. And the advice I provide is figure out, okay, you want that city. You want to go to London. Why does London want you? If you can try to understand the skill set or the industry that's big in London and make yourself valuable to them, it's an easier road for them to look at you and say, oh, you're in financial services and you want to go to London. That makes sense to me. You want to go to Hong Kong, wealth management. I can see that as a path. Well, but the more obvious thing also is if you're in a, particularly if you're in a large consulting firm, I mean, that's, that's the world in which in particular it's, you know, I'm going to move to someplace. But if you were just one to get it through uh, engagement experience, it back to the relationships. That is, I better build the relationships with the partners in London <laughs> who are going to, you know, put me on the engagement or the partners in Switzerland or the department, the partners in China or whatever, wherever you want to go, right? That's going to be important for you. So that you asked earlier about the difference between a, uh, a large consultancy and a, a, a smaller. It's that internal networking is so important in a large consultancy. So the relationships are both internal and external. And, you know, the internal is what got me around the world, basically, uh, because I was tagged by, by our CEO of Equiterra when I wanted to go to China. And he said, you know, I think he paved the way for me, right? Yeah. And it was a, what do they call that? The golden road in yeah, China right. that they're building. So I had, I had, I had a road over there. Ready for some maybe fun questions? Sure. Okay. Favorite movie or book? Book would be better, actually. Lord of the Rings is probably my favorite book of all time, just because it probably was something that was more impactful when I earlier in my life, you know, type thing. So I'm a big fantasy type of a fan. 
favorite meal? And actually, my favorite single meal was the Inn at Little Washington, which is a Michelin three-star restaurant about 60 miles outside of Washington, D.C. My wife and I went there for our 30th wedding anniversary. She better be yeah, checking me on that. <laughs> okay. What a tremendous, I mean, quail eggs and, yeah, I mean, just unbelievable of environment. So not my favorite dish. That's my favorite meal. <laughs> I'm going to get out of the, the rapid fire questions, but in consulting, all the meals you had, do you, does one stand out in your mind as a meal or a client, you know, after, after engagement dinner that you had or that the, they all kind of run together? Well, some stand out. Like, uh, when I did Nestle and I was in the bay and you could go and sit over, the, you know, the, the lake and like Lac Lamont and yeah, yeah, that was a pretty nice, you know, dinner. When we did, uh, I did a client farm. Well, I can name the client as uh, Global Claxo uh, Smith Klein, and we did it in a castle. Thing that was pretty cool. That type of dinner. I did Tupperware in a Spanish castle. That was pretty cool too. Some of the places we get as consultants, it's like, why am I here? This is unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Right. I was on engagement in uh, with Heineken in Amsterdam. I was there for about ten months, and the corporate headquarters was actually the old Heineken house. They put a facade up so you'd walk through it, but you were actually going to their house. Obviously, they added on to it because their house wasn't filled with business people. But I thought that was pretty interesting. And every day at 5 o'clock, you go down to the entrance area, and there's Heineken for you, just if you want to. I recall I recall Heineken. I also recall it was like, I think, at 5 o'clock. Uh, rather than going down to the pub, we opened up, in, in, you know, fresh uh, Heineken in the office, you know, type thing also. I remember that. Other memories you have, though, are also, by the way, I will digress for a fun memory. I did Coca-Cola. And if you've ever been to the Coca-Cola uh, bottling works and things like that, and before they put the top on the lid, I was at the Philadelphia Bottler drinking fresh Coke. Oh, man, it tastes really good <laughs> when they just filled the bottle <laughs> or, or the can. Fresh Coke in Philly. Yeah. Were you ever ever part of the uh, Equiterra purchase, the W50? Yeah. Do you have a favorite vacation spot? Oh, yeah. I've got a few, but uh, Safari in South Africa was great. Uh, all of South Africa was great. <laughs> yeah, but when we did it, we did uh, my 25th wedding anniversary. We went with the kids, and we just did a whole Christmas sort of type, you know, holiday, uh, including Safari in South Africa. That was tremendous. New Zealand's pretty pretty good too, by the way. So those two would be the best. People have said safaris are just off the chart great, yeah. and that's a that's a great time to go in December because it's summertime, and I'm sure you got to see quite a bit. Do you have a Netflix gem that you're watching, or it could be Amazon Prime? It could be anything. Yeah, uh, let me see. What is it? Uh, Call my agent, something like that. Is a Netflix one I'm watching right now. Just came out, right? Yeah, and it's uh, it's French. Yeah, I think it's French with subtitles and things like that. So that's in gym. I mean, I would say Queen's Gambit or something like that, but everybody knows that now. So yeah, that, that was a good one, but but not what I would call a gym. Yeah. Okay. So two final questions. If I gave you a thousand dollars, you had to spend it. A thousand right now. I'm trying to improve my golf game, so I'd probably go buy some uh, golf tracker. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, type thing. I'm not very good at it, but I'm trying to improve it desperately. So I'd probably spend it on that right now. A thousand coaching lessons, maybe. Uh, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that some? All right. Is that some advice for giving? 
<laughs> well, you know, if you're going to buy a piece of technology, I don't know that that's going to do the trick. Although maybe it will, but if technology can spit out what's wrong with your swing, then there you go. Okay, final question. If you could have dinner with anybody, dead or alive. Mm-hmm. Right now, if it was alive, I'd probably go with actually Bill Gates right now because of his plan. Or actually Melinda probably. I might even go with her before I go with Bill because I think she's a little, even possibly better on the philanthropy side. You could take the pair. Yeah, yeah, I'll take the, the pair. Foundation founders. That's it. Well, Bob, can't thank you enough for your time. I thought it was uh, was really good, very insightful. So I appreciate you, everything you've done for my career. And- so I'm wonderful. Thanks so much, Gary. Okay, good luck. <laughs>